0: I'm Rob Kirkup. welcome to How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the scariest places on the planet. In episode 64 we begin a journey beneath the streets of England's capital city and explore the world's oldest underground railway, a railway system said to be home to the largest concentration of ghosts anywhere in Britain, and when you consider all of the deaths and suicides that have occurred here in the 160 years since it first opened as well as the cemeteries, plague pits and crypts that were disturbed during the construction of the stations, it comes as little wonder. This week, ensure you mind the gap, as we ask, just how haunted is the London Underground? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen, Listen on if you dare. The London Underground, also known as the Tube, is the world's oldest underground railway system. It was opened in 1863 and has since expanded to include 11 lines and 272 stations. The Underground is a vital part of London's transportation system, carrying over 1.3 billion passengers every year. The history of the London Underground can be traced back to the early 19th century when London was suffering from severe traffic congestion. In 1855 Charles Pearson, a barrister, proposed a plan for an underground railway system to connect the city's main railway stations. Pearson's plan was met with scepticism, but he eventually managed to convince the government to approve it. The Metropolitan Railway, the world's first underground railway, opened on the 10th of January 1863 the line ran from Paddington to Farringdon, and used steam locomotives to haul gas-lit wooden carriages. The Metropolitan Railway, known as the Met, was a success from the start, carrying over 38,000 passengers on its opening day. There had been hope that a new type of locomotive could be designed, which would mitigate the need for steam and smoke in underground tunnels. John Fowler, the engineer of the Met and later the District Railway as well, had created an experimental locomotive in 1861, which has since become known as Fowler's Ghost. The concept was that broad gauge locomotives would use exhaust recondensing techniques and a large quantity of fire bricks to retain heat and prevent the emission of smoke and steam. After trials on the Great Western Railway in 1861 and in London in 1862, the locomotive was considered a failure. On its first trial it was near to exploding and problems with steaming and pressure retention were never overcome. As a result, it was felt that there was no viable alternative to steam engines. In 1868, five years after the Metropolitan Line opened, the District Railway opened, connecting South Kensington to Westminster. The District Railway was also a success, and by the early 1870s, there were several underground railway lines operating in London. The early underground railways were all shallow level lines, meaning that they were built close to the surface. This made them vulnerable to flooding and other problems. In the late 1880s, engineers began to develop new techniques for building deep level tubes. The first deep level tube line, the City and South London Railway opened in 1890. The line ran from Stockwell to Bank and used electric trains to haul metal carriages. The City and South London Railway was a success and it soon became clear that the deep-level tubes were the future of the London Underground. In 1897, a novel by John Oxenham was published called A Mystery of the Underground. The book tells of a series of grisly murders that were committed on board the London Underground. The book was serialised in a Victorian magazine, and readers found it so utterly terrifying that on Tuesday nights, this is when the fictional murders mostly occurred. Passenger numbers plummeted. On the District and Metropolitan Railway, the use of steam locomotives led to smoke-filled stations and carriages that were unpopular with passengers, and electrification throughout the entire network was seen as the way forward. During the first decade of the 20th century, a tender was put out for a contract to electrify the rail system. Then it was tested, drivers were trained, and it was slowly rolled out, replacing steam engines almost entirely. Either side of the new century saw events which have only twice occurred on the London Underground, a corpse passenger. In 1898 the coffin containing William Gladstone who was the Prime Minister from 1868 until 1894 was transported to Westminster station to make sure it arrived for his stay funeral at Westminster Abbey on time. Some accounts from the Times say that this may have been in recognition of Gladstone and his wife having been one of the first ever London Underground passengers having been on a trial tube ride in May 1862. The second dead passenger was Dr. Thomas Bernardo, famous for setting up a series of children's charitable homes bearing his name. His final underground journey was made on the Central Line in September 1905, from Liverpool Street to Barkinside. In the early 20th century, the London underground network expanded rapidly. New lines were built to connect the city's suburbs to the centre, The Central Line was operational by 1900, the Bakerloo Line and Piccadilly by 1906 and what would become the Northern Line by 1907. The breakout of the First World War in 1914 saw a growth in traffic and a shortage of men, so women were recruited as temporary replacements in traditional men's jobs, such as cleaners, clerks and guards. Maida Vale on the Bakerloo Line became the first underground station to be staffed entirely by women, And they were all paid the same as their male counterparts, 60 years before the implementation of the Equal Pay Act. The first bombs of the First World War were dropped on London in 1915, and the tube stations were utilised as bomb shelters. On the 1st of July 1933, the London Passenger Transport Board, the LPTB was formed, to take control of all of the city's public transport. The LPTB embarked on a major programme to improve and expand the underground network. New stations were built and existing stations were modernised. In the same year Harry Beck, a technical draftsman created a map of the tube using a different colour for each line and only using straight lines and 45 degree angles. A pocket edition of the map was made available in January of 1933 and it was immediately popular. This is the iconic tube map design still used to this day. Beck was paid just 5 guineas for his design, which is around £230 in today's money. The Second World War broke out in 1939 and once again the London Underground played a vital role. Stations were used as air raid shelters and the trains were used to transport troops and supplies. Some services on the Northern Line were suspended as the tunnels under the Thames were blocked as a defence against flooding. German bombing raids over London were constant during 1940 and 1941. In an August of 1940, 175,000 terrified Londoners fleed to the relative safety of the London Underground stations each and every night. Six stations were breached by a direct hit, and the 3rd of March 1943 saw the biggest civilian loss of life during the war and the worst disaster in the history of the London Underground, when 173 people were crushed to death at Bethnal Green Station. In the 1940s, a depot built for the Northern Line extension and an unfinished stretch of the Central Line extension, the underground section between Newbury Park and Leytonstone, was turned into an aircraft factory. The Brompton Road station, which had been closed in 1934, was reopened to be used for the first anti-aircraft division to defend the capital city. The closed Down Street station was used by Winston Churchill, the War Cabinet, and the Railway Emergency Committee. Even the Americans put the London Underground to work for them as the Googe Street Station became a base for General Eisenhower. After the war, the London Underground network continued to expand. New lines were built and existing lines were extended. The Victoria Line opened in 1968 and the Jubilee Line opened in 1979. At 8.46 in the morning on the 28th of February 1975, the most fatal peacetime disaster occurred on the London Underground's northern city line. A train failed to stop at the line's southern terminus, Moor Gate station and crashed into its end wall, 74 were injured and 43 were killed. There was no fault found with the train and the inquiry concluded that the driver, Leslie Newson who was one of the 43 dead was to blame and in fact it was established that Newson had also overshot platforms on the same route on two other occasions earlier in the week of the accident. The post-mortem carried out on Newson's body showed no medical reason to explain the crash, and no conclusive reason has ever been established for why Newson did not apply the brakes. The crash scene was horrific. The first carriage was forced into the roof of the tunnel at the front and the back, but the middle remained on the track bed. The 16 metre long coach, or 52 feet, was crushed to just 6 metres, or 20 feet. The second carriage was concertinaed at the front as it collided with the first and then the third rolled over the rear of the second. Removing the injured and the deceased was a long, difficult job. Many of those injured had to be cut from the wreckage. In the tunnels ventilation was poor and temperatures rose to over 49 degrees Celsius or 120 degrees Fahrenheit. It took 13 hours to remove the injured, and the final body was removed four days later. This was the body of Leslie Newson, the 56-year-old driver. His driver's cab, which was normally 91 centimetres or three feet deep, had been crushed to 15 centimetres or just six inches. In the aftermath of the crash, London Underground introduced a safety system that automatically stops a train when it's travelling too fast. This became informally known as Moorgate Protection. The grieving family and friends of those 43 who lost their lives, campaigned for some recognition for their departed loved ones, and eventually two memorials were unveiled near the station, one in July 2013 and one in February 2014. At around 7.30 on the night of the 18th of November 1987, a fire broke out at King's Cross and Pancras tube station. It had been caused by a lit match being dropped onto the wooden escalator. 100 people were badly injured and 31 were killed. An inquest was carried out and the findings were inexcusable. Staff had been given no training on how to handle a situation involving a fire and they didn't even know how to safely evacuate the stations should the need arise. This led to resignations of senior management in both the London Underground and the London Regional Transport and it saw new fire safety regulations swiftly introduced. Wooden escalators were gradually replaced with metal escalators on the underground. During the busy rush hour on the morning of the 7th of July 2005 London was rocked by a terrorist attack which has been referred to as 7-7. Three suicide bombers detonated homemade devices on the underground. Firstly on the circle line at Aldgate killing 7 people, and Edgware Road killing 6. The third bomb was detonated on the Piccadilly line between Kings Cross and Russell Square, killing 26 passengers. Later the same day a bomb exploded on a bus in Tavistock Square, which took the life of 13 passengers. Four terrorists had killed themselves. 52 innocent commuters were dead and over 700 were badly injured in the attacks. It took over a month before underground services were restored. During the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games, the underground saw record ridership levels, with over 4.3 million people using the tube on some days. This record was subsequently broken on the 4th of December 2015, with 4.82 million people riding in just one day. At the polar opposite end of the scale, the Covid pandemic in 2020 led to passenger numbers, through necessity, declining to numbers not seen since the 1800s. The London Underground is still expanding today, and the iconic tube is a vital part of the capital's transportation system. It continues to play an important role in the city's economy and culture. Ever since the London Underground first opened for the people of the city in 1863, It has been linked to the supernatural, with staff and passengers claiming to have experienced something out of the ordinary. The mystery and intrigue of the tube is enhanced by the 272 active stations being joined by a number of abandoned stations that exist to this day. Many left exactly as they were when they were last used. This underground world of dark echoey tunnels and dimly lit corridors and platforms combined with the lives lost here in accidents suicides and even murder have bubbled over creating a melting pot of hauntings at many many of the stations throughout its 160-year history. Over the next two episodes we will explore over 20 stations that are home to ghosts and ghouls from every period of the underground's history and some which predate even the earliest station by centuries. With phantoms as diverse as Celtic warrior queens, Victorian era actors, an Egyptian princess a murderer who met their end in the electric chair, and staff who have worked and died right here on the London Underground. Let's visit these stations in alphabetical order, meaning that our journey begins at Aldgate on the Circle Line. Ever since Aldgate station opened in 1876, there have been stories of paranormal occurrences in this station, supposedly reported so often that the station apparently keeps a ghost log book. The reason for this station appearing to be so active may well have something to do with the 1,114 human skeletons that were discovered in the ground here when the station was being built. For Aldgate was built on the site of a plague pit dating from 1665, when the Great Plague of London killed a quarter of London's population, some 100,000 men, women and children over an 18 month period. In 1722, Daniel Defoe, best remembered for writing Robinson Crusoe, had a novel called A Journal of the Plague Year published. Defoe himself was just five years old in 1665, so this harrowing book was written based on the journals of Henry Fo, who was Defoe's uncle, and who experienced the horrors of the Great Plague of London for himself. Defoe wrote of Londoners suffering horrific painful deaths in their thousands, families being locked in their homes because one of them had contracted the plague, so they were all left to die together. Nurses in the deaths of victims, and gravediggers accepting bribes to dig up the dead and bury a victim in their place in heaving burial grounds. The four rites of a plague pit at Aldgate, 40 feet or 12 metres long, 16 feet or 5 metres wide, and at least 20 feet or 6 metres deep. Digging of the pit was completed on the 4th of September 1665, and from the 6th, just two days later, it was being used to put dead bodies in. Within less than two weeks it was full, with 1,114 poor Londoners being dumped in it. Defoe writes, A terrible pit it was, and I could not resist my curiosity to go and see it, for though the plague was long a-coming to our parish, yet when it did come, There was no parish in or about London where it raged with such violence as in the two parishes of Aldgate and Whitechapel. He tells of what his uncle Henry saw for himself during those terrible days. The cart had in it sixteen or seventeen bodies. Some were wrapped up in linen sheets, some in rags, some little other than naked, or so loose that what was covering them had fell from them in the shooting out of the cart, and they fell quite naked among the rest. But the matter was not much to them, or the indecency much to anyone else, seeing they were all dead, and were to be huddled together into the common grave of mankind, as we may call it. Defoe describes his uncle seeing a man pacing up and down in distress, after having accompanied the bodies of his dead wife and tiny children to the plague pit. He would had to stand by and watch his whole family dumped in a pit, with absolutely no respect. He was so distraught that he collapsed, and the pallbearers had to help him up and took him into his local tavern, the Pie Tavern in Houndsditch, to recover. The book is a novel, so which elements of it are purely fictional isn't clear, but the book certainly does appear to be rooted in fact. So if you're travelling on the London Underground and pass through Aldgate, take a moment to spare a thought for those who were unceremoniously dumped in the pit which was once there. Considering the death and suffering that happened here, it comes as little surprise that Aldgate is said to be so active. One incredible story at the station tells of a man falling onto the tracks. Touching the live track, he was electrocuted, falling unconscious almost immediately. He came too quickly and suffered absolutely no injuries whatsoever. Stunned onlookers, who felt helpless to help him, knowing that if they touched him, they too would be electrocuted, said that as he lay there unconscious, electricity passing through his body, an elderly lady, who appeared see-through, knelt next to him and stroked his hair. Oldwich Station opened as Strand Station in 1907 on the site of the former Royal Strand Theatre. It was renamed Aldwych in 1915 to avoid confusion with the Charing Cross Station that was named Charing Cross Strand until Strand was renamed at which point the Charing Cross part of the name was dropped. In 1994, Oldwich Station was closed. This was because the previous year work had been needed to be done on the lifts and a decision was made that the cost simply wasn't worth it. So it was closed and forgotten. Today lying empty and abandoned. It's what's called rather fittingly a ghost station. A station that is unused but has not been demolished. It's probably the best known of the underground's abandoned stations as Transport for London used it for tours. It's been used for filming for TV and movies and it's got its own ghost. It's believed the female Phantom who calls Old Witch home is an actress from the theatre that once stood on the site of the station. Back when the station was in use, cleaning staff in the dead of night, when the station was empty, quiet and still, would often see a woman standing on the railway tracks. Next up, we're not heading to a station as such. We're gonna take a ride on the Begaloo line. Upon which in 1983, Karen Collett was riding the tube with her young nephew and had a camera with her. He asked her to take a photo of him, so she did, but little did she know that that photograph would become huge news, as when it was developed, it showed something absolutely incredible. You can see the photo for yourself over on the Instagram at howhauntedpod right now. In the window behind the beaming young boy, is a man sitting in an electric chair with stylized electricity coming from his restrained hands. There is a bar across the man's chest, which is part of the train window, meaning that the figure is behind the window, outside the carriage. The obvious answer would be that this was an advertisement along the route of the Begalu line. However, the photo was taken inside a tunnel, while the train was moving, and at that time, the tunnels didn't have advertisements within them. Maurice Gross of the Society for Psychical Research or the SPR, who was famous for his investigation of the Enfield Poltergeist case in the late 1970s, took an interest in the photograph and sought to establish the cause and identity of the man in the picture. He took the negative and camera to Robert Cox, an expert from the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television, now known as the National Media Museum, who concluded it's an amateur point-and-shoot camera, so to do more manipulation on the photographs, particularly in the 1980s, you would have needed quite sophisticated cameras. Morris Gross did successfully identify who the man was, and rather than offer any answers for the photograph, it just added to the mystery. The image in the window was found to be an exact match for a figure from Madame Tussaud's wax museum's Chamber of Horrors, right here in London. The waxwork being that of Bruno Houtman, Who lived from 1899 to 1936 and was famous for being convicted for the kidnapping and murder of aviator Charles Lindbergh's 20-month-old baby boy in 1932. He was executed in the electric chair on the 3rd of April 1936 at Trenton State Prison in Trenton, New Jersey. He was 36 years old. Comparisons of the figure in the photo showed that they were identical with the exception for the electric bolt seen coming from the hands in the photo. This led to the belief that there simply must have been adverts for Madame Tussauds somewhere along the Bergaloo line, using Houtman on the electric chair as the image. Surely this was the mystery solved, and this was in no way anything paranormal, right? Well, the Underground have confirmed that there was no advertisements in those tunnels, and Madame Tussauds confirmed that they never used Houtman in any of their promotional materials. To this day, nobody can explain that photograph taken 40 years ago. Karen Collette has told in interviews about another strange incident that happened shortly after this photograph was taken that she didn't immediately connect to the electrocuted man. This was until Gross established his identity. She had gone with a friend whose mother had passed away and was going to get a reading done by a medium. She waited outside until her friend was done, however when her friend came outside she was accompanied by the medium who said that he had a message for Karen. The medium said, it's about your photo. I just want you to know that the man said, I'm accused of something I didn't do, but I did do something else. At the time, Karen had no idea what the medium was talking about, but Bruno Houtman insisted that he was innocent of the crime of killing Lindbergh's son right up until the moment the switch was flipped and he was killed in the electric chair. He could have pleaded guilty and likely avoided the death penalty, But he was adamant that he didn't do it. Bank station opened in 1900 in the epicentre of London's financial district, hence the name. The specific bank it being named for being the Bank of England, which was established in 1694. It's one of the busiest stations on the London Underground, and in recent years it was rated one of the worst stations, so it has undergone a seven year long upgrade and expansion, which was completed this year, 2023, and it's also another station with a dark history and it's got its very own ghost. Much like Oldgate station it's been claimed that bank was built on the site of a plague pit. This appears to be historical fact at Oldgate, but it's a little less clear here. What we do know is that its northern line ticket hall was once the crypt of the adjacent St Mary Woolnath's church, at least the third church on the site which dates from 1716. Permission had been obtained to demolish the church, but after public protest, the company changed its plans and decided to build only a subsurface ticket hall and lift entrance in the crypt of the church. The dead had to be reinterred elsewhere to make way for this new station, and we don't know where all of the 7,000 to 8,000 bodies were taken, but we do know that some was taken to South London's Nunhead Cemetery. The now empty crypt had to be strengthened with steel framework and underpinning the church's foundations. Unusually for stations later converted to escalators, the original lift access from the ticket hall is still in use. Bank was one of the six stations hit by German bombs during World War II. The station was full of terrified families taking shelter during the Blitz. And on the 11th of January 1941, the central line ticket hall of the station suffered a direct hit from a German bomb. The roadway collapsed into the subways and station concourse. Many were injured and 56 were killed. Commuters have often spoken of an overwhelming sense of hopelessness and sadness in the dim walkways and tunnels and wailing, moaning, screaming and crying heard echoing along the platforms. Staff work and late at night have reported hearing odd banging sounds coming from lifts known to be empty. Often when they do go to investigate, they can hear the sound of quiet sobbing coming from inside. Doors mysteriously slam open and closed in the ticket hall. Visitors of the station report strange and unpleasant smells within the station to staff, even since the extensive programme of work. No cause for these stenches can be found. Then there's the female figure seen dressed all in black. This female phantom is the Black Nun, or Sarah Whitehead, as she was known in life. Sarah's older brother Philip Whitehead was a clerk at the Bank of England. Surrounded by wealthy city traders and rich bankers, Philip acquired a taste for the finer things in life, despite not earning enough to pay for such an extravagant lifestyle. He borrowed money, but he couldn't make enough money to pay it back, leading him to lending even more. His money trouble was spiralling out of control. He tried investing in the stock market, but lost even more money. His desperation led to gambling which saw his death skyrocket. With nowhere left to turn he decided to take advantage of his position at the bank and successfully forged a cheque for £87 which is around £3,000 a day. He thought his money troubles were over but he was discovered, arrested and taken in Newgate prison until the date of his trial. Philip was incredibly close to his younger sister Sarah who was just 19 years old so he did everything he could to keep her sheltered from what was happening to him. She stayed with friends elsewhere in the city. Philip was found guilty and he was sentenced to death. He was 36 years old when he was executed in 1812. Interestingly, the records held at the Old Bailey mistakenly list him as Paul rather than Philip Whitehead. Sarah was puzzled by her brother's sudden disappearance. She couldn't find him anywhere, so she went to his place of work, the bank to ask if his colleagues knew where he was. They smiled to her as they lied, not today madam, but assured her that he was fine and he would be back to work soon. She would return daily, expecting to walk in and see her brother in his rightful place at the counter helping customers. As the days passed by, her hope began to wane and she could not understand where her brother had gone. One day however, when she asked her usual question at the bank of have you seen my brother today, She happened to ask a clerk who was not aware of the lie and pretense that Philip had hoped would help his sister, but instead was slowly driving her crazy. She was tipped over the edge into madness when she was told, I'm sorry madam, but your brother is dead. He explained to her that her brother had been executed. The shock at finding out that her brother was dead, saw her life lose all purpose. And every day, dressed all in black, she would visit the bank and ask the staff at the counter, Have you seen my brother? They'd reply, Not today. And she would say, Give him my love when he comes back. I will call again tomorrow. The bank took pity on Sarah and her situation, at first. But she came to the bank every single day for the remainder of her life. She was 19 at the time of her brother's death and lived into her late 40s, meaning that she visited the bank for almost 30 years before her own premature death, the cause of which we do not know. She was laid to rest near the Bank of England, possibly even on the site of the current bank station. But she is far from at rest. The Black Nun, as she is known, continues to search for her brother. Other versions of the legend claim that Sarah didn't visit the bank every day until her death, as the bank fed up with her daily visits and her appearances all dressed in black, as if attending a funeral, unnerved staff and customers. So they offered her a sum of money providing that she no longer came into the bank for the rest of her life. And she accepted this offer, but now with her life over, she is free from the deal, and continues her daily search and her daily visits of the bank. The Black Nun is seen in and around the Bank of England, and also in and around Bank Underground Station, which has led some to wonder if her body was laid to rest in the crypt, and she was moved during the construction of the station. She even approaches pedestrians on the street and in the station saying, Have you seen my brother? In 2001 a passenger who got off the tube at Bank Station saw a woman dressed all in black walk along the fairly quiet platform before turning and walking into the wall. One night Cliff Archibald was on duty at Bank at 2 in the morning when he experienced something unusual and potentially had his own encounter with the Black Nun. He told of his experience in a 2005 documentary entitled Ghosts on the Underground. I noticed what appeared to be a little old lady standing in a long corridor, a dogleg junction. I collected a station radio so I could maintain contact with my colleague and made my way through the station. As I reached the same level that she was standing, she looked up and looked straight at me, then looked down again. She turned and she started walking away. I actually started running down the corridor in order to catch her. By the time I got to the dog leg, she disappeared. I immediately thought this was strange as I knew that I covered the ground an awful lot quicker than she could have walked from the dog leg to the stairs. I went down the spiral staircase, both sets of gates were still closed and padlocked, but she was nowhere to be seen. Now I don't believe in ghosts or spirits or anything like that, so I wasn't going to accept the fact that something pretty spooky was going on. So I called to my colleague in the operations room to check the CCTV cameras to find out where she could have disappeared to. He checked over 100 cameras and she was nowhere to be seen. Looking back at my experience at Bank Station on that particular evening and being the sceptic that I am, it will stay with me the rest of my life as I can't come up with a logical explanation for what happened. In the same documentary Andy Harkness who had worked for London Underground for 35 years by the time he told of his experience to the television crew he explained what happened to him back in 1982. He just locked up for the night and as he did every night he went around checking there was nobody in the station. He reached the four old lifts numbered one to four and opened and closed all four of them ensuring that they were empty. These were the older lifts and had thick heavy wooden doors but they were all clean and empty So after checking lift number one, the last of the four, he started walking away. But he was stopped in his tracks by three loud, clear knocks from inside lift number one. The lift he knew to be empty. He chastised himself for getting a little bit frightened by it. Telling himself to ignore it, and he walked away. He entered the switch room and wedged the door open. He started to walk across the ticket hall, when suddenly the door that he'd wedged open slammed shut with incredible force he was too scared to even look back. On the 18th of June 1926, Gale Street Holt Station opened, being renamed Beacon Tree in 1932, at which point it was expanded. The evening of the 30th of January 1958 was a particularly foggy one, and at 7.34pm, just beyond Beacon Tree Station, the 1835 train ploughed into the back of the 1820 train. This resulted in a number of the carriages of the 1820 train being wrecked and others derailed. It left many passengers injured and 10 dead. This accident is said to be the cause of the faceless girl who calls Beacon Tree station home to this day. On one occasion in 1992, the station supervisor was working a late shift in his office. The door rattled, which would happen when a train was approaching the station due to his officer's doors close proximity to the platform but no train arrived. A couple of minutes later, it rattled again. Confused, he left his office and went out to see if there was anybody else around. As he walked along the deserted platform, he had a sudden feeling that somebody was behind him. He turned around and came face to face with a woman with long blonde hair, and she had no face. It was just a void where her features should have been. Bethnal Green Station opened on the 4th of December 1946, but it had been used by the people of London during World War II as an air raid shelter, with 5,000 bunks in it, accommodating up to 7,000 people. Often the station would come alive at night, as families chose to spend the night in the station, rather than risk staying home, and then hearing the wail of the air raid siren in the middle of the night. At 8.17pm on the 3rd of March 1943, saw the dreaded sound of the air raid siren. The locals had slept in the air raid shelters, but by 1943 the bombing raids had become far less frequent, so they calmly made their way to the sanctuary offered by the unfinished station. However, at around 8.30, the searchlight went on and the new anti-aircraft rocket battery sounds rang out from Victoria Park, leading the families to fear the bombers were coming, so they ran for their lives. With most of the able-bodied men away fighting for the war those rushing at the station were women and children and the elderly a young woman cradling her baby in a bundle of bedding in the hope that she could secure a bunk tripped and fell in the darkness three steps from the bottom of the ten foot wide staircase which didn't have any kind of handrail a woman and child fell over her and then more people fell over them with more and more people following them into the station before long it was a terrible scene of heaps of bodies at the bottom of those 19 stairs. Many seriously injured, and with the panic and fear of the bombing outside and the crushing that was taking place inside the station, it led to more frantic struggles. Around 300 people ended up falling on that staircase. 60 of them were badly injured and they were taken to hospital. But 173 were killed from either being crushed to death or from asphyxiation. 27 of the dead were men, 84 were women, and 62 were children. It was 20 to midnight by the time the last casualty was removed from the station. Devastatingly, these sirens weren't even due to a real air raid. It was a test of the air raid siren and the anti-aircraft missiles. There was absolutely no threat whatsoever from enemy bombers. This disaster should never have happened, and those 173 lives should never have been cut short. The government made the ill judged decision to attempt to cover up the terrible accident, feeling that it could be bad for morale, as well as leading to further confusion when the air raid sirens sounded in times of genuine danger, with people pausing to question whether this was a real siren or just another test. The government waited 36 hours before breaking the terrible news, and even then, they lied. They announced that a German bomb had landed on the station and caused the deaths. It was 74 years later when a memorial to the dead was created the final finished memorial was unveiled in december 2017. it's named the stairway to heaven and it's covered with the names of all 173 people who died in the disaster with such loss of life in such horrendous circumstances it likely comes as little surprise that bethnal green is another of the underground stations believed to be haunted and in this case by the ghosts of those who died there that terrible night The sound of children crying and women screaming has been heard, most often reported at around 8.30pm, the same time 80 years ago that those 173 people died at the foot of that staircase, the staircase which still remains at the entrance of the station today. In spring 1981, a member of the night shift John Graham was working overnight at the station all alone. The final passenger had left, the station was locked and he was in an office quietly doing some paperwork. Suddenly he could hear something that he struggled to comprehend. It was a sound of children crying. He tried to ignore it, convinced, or perhaps hoping, that it was nothing more than his imagination. However, it got louder and louder and louder, and the sound of the upset children was joined by women screaming, the sound of footsteps, panicked people running, hundreds of them. After ten minutes he plucked up the courage to leave his office and stepped out into the ticket hall. There was no one there. But the sound continued. He said, I was frightened to go back to the office because of the noise down there. It was quite frightening. Actually, I still don't want to go through Bethnal Green to this day. I can't forget it, you know. And that's where our journey ends for this week. But next week, we will conclude our tour of the haunted London Underground. Starting off by boarding a train bound for a station said to be the haunt of a screaming phantom of an ancient Egyptian princess. And there's so much more as we still have 15 more stations to investigate. Mind the gap. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at HowHauntedPod, or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod, where you will see photos galore relating to the ghosts of the London Underground. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me at rob at how-haunted.com. If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get early ad free access to all episodes and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, ghost stories and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from the ghost hunt. What's more there's currently a free 7 day trial at the £3 tier, so you could get access to last month's big Halloween episode which was one hell of a night at the Golden Fleece in York. And the November Patreon episode coming soon, which will focus on the Bedlam Theatre in Edinburgh. Then there are all of the other special episodes, which include the National Railway Museum, Dalhousie Castle Hotel, the York Dungeon, the Camo Estate, and Hagerston Castle Holiday Park. You can also get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash How Pod. If you'd like to support the show but you aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate £2 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Pod. All the information and links are in the podcast episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out, we jump on board our connecting train for the second and final part of our tour of the Haunted London Underground where we will look at hauntings ranging from a murdered Victorian actor, a Celtic warrior queen, the ghost of a girl killed in a fire on the underground in 1987, and the spirits of former staff members, still continuing to work on the underground in death. Join me next week as we continue our journey along the haunted London underground. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question, how haunted?